So we're walking through this series called Reset, and we're looking at things that we need to reset in our lives. And one of the things that we need to really kind of think about is greatness. And there's sort of the message of the world that tells you, hey, this is what greatness is. And there's the message of Scripture that tells you what greatness is. And in fact, it's it sort of, there's a good verse I'm, I'm just going to show you. Um, Paul is this follower of Jesus who starts churches, and he started one in a town called Corinth, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But this is really kind of our verse for the day. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. So there's sort of a commonly held kind of worldly idea about how things should be, and then there is God's way, and they're not always the same. And Paul would say God's way is always the best way. And, and so we're going to talk about that today. Let me begin with a story. I, it was kind of a, a funny little story I read this week. Uh, it was a guy who used to own, um, he tells this from the perspective of owning a, one of those Volkswagen Beetles. Remember those? And it was a, a stick shift. And so he, was, he got up, he was late for work, he goes out, he can't start his car because he had left the lights on. So his battery had, had run down. But because it is a manual transmission, he could pop the clutch. And everybody knows what that is, right? You can pop the clutch. Everybody, anybody, you know what I'm talking about? So if you get it rolling and you have it in first gear, you can uh, let off the clutch and it engages and it'll start your car, even if you can't start it uh, with a, a jumper cable, that kind of thing. So he gets outside. He can't start his car. He realizes he's left his lights on. He's really annoyed and he's already late for work. So he goes in and he wakes his wife up to come outside. She doesn't know about cars, and he doesn't have time to explain what he wants to do, but he says, I need you to push my car because I'm going to pop the clutch. And she's like, what's pop the clutch? And, you know, if you've had those arguments as, as couples, and it's like, I don't have time to explain it. Just, you need to push my car 30 miles an hour so I can pop the clutch. Yeah, you know where it's going. Uh, that's good. So this is what he writes at the end. I sat there fuming and wondering, what is she doing? And then a minute passed and I looked in my rearview mirror and she was heading at me at 40 miles an hour. And I realized I should have been a bit clearer on my instruction. The the funny part about that is it talks about power and misunderstanding. And that's sort of what this verse deals with. In fact, Scripture tells us throughout that... There's a, there's a way God says it ought to be done, and there's a way that people say it ought to be done, and God's way is right. And In Isaiah, it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, uh, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God has a way of doing things. He has a way that he says we should do things. And the big idea for the day is God has this notion around greatness that isn't the same as the world has. So, Paul writes this letter to Corinth and he says, hey, there are people who probably think, this is generally what he says in that verse we looked at a second ago, there are people who, who generally think you're not doing it the right way. It seems foolish to them. And so today, we're going to look at some things Jesus did from the cross. i got to go back. i got to look at it just one more time. The message of the cross is foolish to some people. To some folks, they look at Jesus and what he did on the cross, and it is foolishness to them. And so we're going to look at three things that Jesus did from the cross. You've heard the expression, practice what you preach. Well, Jesus, on the cross, did certain things 
that teach us this is the way life should be lived. This is the best way life is lived. Now, when Paul writes this, he's writing to a town which is very wild. Corinth was a a wild, really, it's sort of like, you know, kind of Vegas-like. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a it was a merchant's paradise because it was it's on a strip of land. It's called an isthmus. Do you all know this word, isthmus? It kind of sounds like uh, I'm speaking with a lisp. But uh, it's a strip of land between two harbors. And so if, if I'm sailing into this harbor and I want stuff to go that direction, then I could hire somebody to transport it from my ship here across the isthmus to this harbor here. And very, very wealthy town. High commerce town. It was a, a cosmopolitan town because there are lots of people from lots of different places. They had lots of different ways of looking at things. There were at least 12 different temples there. The most popular temple was to a goddess called Aphrodite. The way you worshipped Aphrodite was you would go in with the temple prostitutes. It wasn't very hard to get people to convert uh, to Aphrodite worship because, I mean, good grief. And so it was extremely popular, this town. In fact, uh, there are, um, there's an inscription found on one of the colonnades there that reads like this uh, in, in Latin, Quafit manus Corinthi, trophimum quas est uh, Corinthi. And the translation is, uh, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And uh, uh, so, um, this was the kind of place it was. It's kind of a wild place. And so, Paul writes this letter, he wrote a couple of letters to the Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, we have that in our Bibles. And he writes this letter to say, look, there's a way that they do things in your town, and there's a teaching, sort of a common understood belief system in your town that will tell you what God teaches is wrong. They'll tell you it's foolish, that's the word he uses, it's foolish, but they're when, when God tells us to deny ourselves or when God tells us this is the best way, He's not doing it because it benefits Him. It, he, he, do, he does it because it benefits us. And so let's look at the power of the cross, the, the things that Jesus not only taught, but He practiced. And He practiced some of these things literally from the cross. So the first one is this, that forgiveness is greater than revenge. Now, there's a, there's a market around revenge. Uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There are movies around revenge. There are songs around revenge. Uh, some of the you know, uh, best movies are about revenge. Karate Kid. Uh, it's, that's revenge, man. Uh, y'all, it, uh, I watched it yesterday. It was great. Um, and, and I want that guy with that funky hair to get popped. I just love that part. We love that stuff. A little sweet little Carrie Underwood wrote that song about um, uh, maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. And, he, and listen to this. Tell me what's wrong with this. Before he cheats, she writes, I dug my keys into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats, took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. What's wrong with that? You don't slash your name. Come on, Carl, you're not thinking. You don't slash your name. Put somebody else's name. That, and it's, 
you're, you're, you're now you're going to get caught. You know, it's like, but we like that stuff. I, I love a good revenge story. This is a guy right here. His name is Tim Shaw. He's sort of the Howard Stern of British radio. And Shaw was interviewing a centerfold model on his radio show one night. And um, he says sort of flippantly, I'd leave my wife and kids for you. Unfortunately, his wife was listening. Her name is Haley. Haley decided that she had had enough of Tim's you know, junk. And so he's standing in front of um, an Esprit Lotus Esprit Turbo worth about $45,000. And so she put it up for auction while he's doing his show. And the stipulation was you have to pick it up in the next hour before he gets home. You want to know what the price she put on it? 90 cents. It sold in five minutes and three seconds. And this is what she said. When asked about the price, she said, I didn't care about the money. I just wanted to get him back. Is it just me or is that a great story? I mean, I love that story. As a dad of daughters, this, I love that. However, 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 this isn't what Jesus teaches us to do. In fact, um, the world will say, hey, if you're, uh, if you're forgiving, then you're weak, uh, you're foolish. Vengeance is powerful and wise. And yet from the cross, Jesus did this. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to a cross. And the criminals uh, also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. They nailed them all to the cross. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You talk about a difference of perspective. I don't. How do you do that? I mean, we, we sort of think, well, that's Jesus. I mean, what, we're people. Jesus can do that because he's God, and we're not God. And so it's, it's really, really difficult. But it's doable. And here's what's... When we forgive like that, people take notes of it. I'm going to show you a video clip. Let me set it up for you. Uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, from South Africa, uh, was in prison for 27 years. Uh, it was during apartheid, and I'll, I'll give you the, the most general summation of apartheid. There were white people uh, living in this country, South Africa, and they were in charge, and black people had very few rights. And then there was a shift, a change. And when the, back, the black population gained the right to vote. They voted, and Mr. Mandela, who had gone from being a, a prisoner 27 years, became president. Now, you can imagine the emotions that that would raise in a person. Uh, he'd been in prison by the, the white apartheid folks, and now he's in power. Think about how much vengeance he could exact because of his position. And yet he chose not to. Uh, this video is from a movie called Invictus. It, it's, it is kind of amazing. And so the scene I'm going to show you is, uh, as a president, you had a bodyguard. And so when, uh, when Mandela became the president, he had uh, a black bodyguards, black bodyguards, and they needed help. And so Mandela solicited the white bodyguards who had been the bodyguards of the former president, a guy named de Klerk, and he, he, he wanted them to merge as his bodyguards. 
Now, you can imagine he didn't <laughs> consult the head uh, black bodyguard, and so this head black bodyguard comes in to confront Mandela about his decision to, um, to include the white guys in his bodyguard troop. So that's where we find ourselves. So just have yourself. You look agitated, Jason. Well, that's because there are four special branch cops in my office. Oh, what did you do? Nothing. Well, they say they're the presidential bodyguards and they have orders signed by you. Ah, yes, ah, yes. Well, uh, these men are special trained by SAS. They have lots of experience. They protected the clerk. Yes, sir, but it doesn't mean that they have to come. You asked for more men, didn't you? Yes, sir. I asked... Um... When people see me in public, they see my bodyguards. You represent me directly. The Rainbow Nation starts here. Reconciliation starts here. Reconciliation, sir. Yes, reconciliation, Jason. Comrade President, not long ago, these guys tried to kill us. Maybe even these four guys in my office tried and often succeeded. Yes, I know. Forgiveness starts here, too. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Please, Jason. Try. Sorry to disturb you, sir. When a guy who's been in prison for 27 years says forgiveness liberates the soul, you listen. Because if there was ever a person who had the right to be vengeful, and now he was putting, put in a position where he could be vengeful, and yet he chose forgiveness. We, we look at Jesus from the cross and we say, well, that's Jesus. But there are people who do this all the time, and it... It causes them to stand out. I, I've preached sermons on forgiveness before, and people will say to me, well, you make it sound so easy. If I've ever made it sound easy, I apologize. I'm not saying forgiveness is easy. I'm just saying it's right. If Jesus calls us to this, and he does, look, Jesus said, you must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Forgive others, and you'll be forgiven. And look at this one. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Throughout Scripture, we're told that forgiveness is the right way to live our lives. The world will tell us vengeance is great and they make great movies and you hardly get any great movies about forgiveness. But here's the truth. Jesus says it's the right way. He says this is how we are supposed to live. It's foolishness to those who don't understand it. For those who follow Jesus, it's the right way. The second thing he says, uh, his selflessness is greater than selfishness. And we live in a world where we're told if it feels good, do it. Um, It's a dog-eat-dog world. Look out for number one. Uh, You only go around once, grab all the gusto you can. And as a great theologian, Ricky Bobby, one time said, uh, if you're not first, you're last. And so we have to remember, we live in a world where this isn't the message that we hear. And honestly, I just got to tell you, I needn't to look nowhere other than inside myself to understand the the reality of selfishness. 
If there's one piece of pie left or there's one piece of fried chicken left at my house, I know who I'd like for it to, to come to, right? I tell, you know, Elise, hey, look, you know, it's like, uh, this is how it works. Don't you have homework? Uh, no, you can't eat anymore. It's time for you to go. Selfishness is easy. It's easy. Selflessness is really, really tough. There was a guy, he went to the doctor and he finally gets in to see the doctor and he walk, the doctor walks in and says, is there anything going on? You know, it's kind of his annual checkup. He said, yeah, doc, I'm, I'm really confused sometimes. I'll, I'll go to a place and I won't remember why I'm there or I can't remember where I'm going. I'm kind of, I just don't, I'm, I don't remember certain things like I used to. What, what, what do I need to do? And the doc said, well, first you need to pay me before you leave. Uh, that is, we're, we're easy to be selfish and to think of ourselves first. But do you realize that from the cross, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Now, they have nails in his hands and in his feet. And the only way you can breathe in that condition is you have to lift yourself up on your toes. There's a little platform there, a little board. And you lift yourself up and that's how you get your breath. And then you, then you can't breathe. You suffocate, really. Crucifixion is about suffocation. And Jesus would have to lift himself up to breathe, and he'd have to lift himself up to talk. And from the cross, he's, he's there on the cross. And in my mind's eye, this is how this goes down. He sees his mother, and he sees his best friend John, and he says to John, dude, I need you to take care of my mom. Now, I don't know why he hadn't made arrangements before. He had a lot on his mind. I get that. But in that moment, while he's on the cross, he thinks enough of his mother to make arrangements for her when he's gone. I mean, that's selflessness. To think of someone else. Look, if I'm on the cross, I'm just going to be real clear. I'm thinking about me. I'm pretty sure all I'm thinking about is me. He's thinking about his mother. Paul in another place writes this. He says, now most people would be willing to, uh, would, would uh, not be willing to die for an un, uh, upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We didn't earn it or deserve it. And yet he loved us enough. He was selfless enough. The message of the cross says to put others' interests above your own. Let me show you a picture. This is a guy named Nathan Barlow. It's not a great picture, but he's a great guy. For 60 years, he worked in Ethiopia with um, the folks there. They had a disease called mossy foot. It was kind of a a fungus that would then infect feet and then the lower legs, and it would cause uh, the feet basically to, to deteriorate to the place where they couldn't be used anymore. And uh, Dr. Barlow became the foremost uh, expert on this condition, and he was able to treat it, and he treated many, many Ethiopians, and he was a follower of Jesus, and he loved the people of Ethiopia. And one time he uh, got an impacted molar, and there weren't really any dentists around, and so he had to fly back to the States to get this taken care of. And his comment was that he never wanted a toothache to take him away from his work again, so he just had the dentist pull all his teeth. 
And then he got fitted for dentures, so he would never have to leave. I, I like my teeth. I can't imagine that. There are people that do these things that are so selfless, they're willing <laughs> to give. He got to the end of his life and his daughter flew him back to the state so he could spend his last days there. And within two weeks he said, please, please fly me back to Ethiopia. Because those are my people. That's where I want to be. And she did. It is uncommon, but it, it's right to be selfless rather than selfish. And we don't see it very much. And that's the call of the Christian. Hey, live a life that's different. A third thing is this, that grace is better than works. The hardest thing to grasp about Christianity is you can't earn it. You, you can't do something. Because we live in a world that says um, there's no free lunch. Nobody rides for free. Um, that uh, nobody gives you anything for nothing. And so we think we have to do something to earn God's favor. And so uh, we come up with religion. And religion says if you light enough candles or if you say enough prayers or if you give enough alms to the poor or if you attend enough services, if you get baptized, if you join a church or if you're the right religion, if you kill enough infidels, then God will honor you and let you in to paradise. This is... This makes sense. What I know in life is typically somebody doesn't give me something for nothing. We're Americans. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're accustomed to doing it ourselves. And the reason grace is so frustrating is that it's all about Jesus and nothing about us. And that's frustrating for us. Yet, again, on the cross, Jesus is hanging between two thieves and he has a conversation with one. And the conversation goes like this. One of the thieves says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And that dude did nothing to earn paradise. I think the story is in here. I love this story because anytime somebody says, well, what do I have to do? Or uh, will I, can I be disqualified? It's like, you doing anything, good or bad, won't either get you in or get you out. This guy had no opportunity to do anything. Grace is amazing. Jesus taught one time his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, follow me. So once we become a follower, we do some things, not to earn it, but because we've been given this gift if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. This is about relationship. And so we, anytime God calls us to deny ourselves, we have to understand it's for our benefit. And this is a picture of the power that is the gospel. That, that we're to forgive rather than seek revenge. That we're to be selfless rather than to be selfish. That we're to embrace grace and to surrender rather than trying to do it on our own. It's kind of different for us. Now, John, who was Jesus' most likely his best friend, at least one of his best friends, writes a book in the Bible called Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. 
And in this book, he has an encounter. He writes about an encounter he has with Jesus. The resurrected, in heaven, uh, powerful Jesus. And I want to read it to you and just sort of... I want you to get the feel of the power of the Lord Jesus. John writes, It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the Spirit and suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. That would get your attention, obviously. It would be like you being outside and somebody's car backfires. You kind of you know, get your attention. Or a siren goes off. And this sound, it said, Write in a book everything you see. And when I turned to see who was speaking to me, he's talking about Jesus here, I saw seven golden lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. This was Jesus. He was wearing a long robe and a gold sash around his chest. And the long robe meant, um, and sash meant royalty. This is what royal people wore. This was a, an indicator of his, his um, position. He was royal. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And white hair is always a symbol of wisdom. He is all wise. And his eyes were like flames of fire, and he could penetrate you just with his sight. And his feet were like polished bronze, and polished bronze is always a symbol of, of judgment. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He was powerful. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And John experiences Jesus like this, unlike he's ever experienced him before. And this is his reaction. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. There are people who malign and belittle Jesus today who will experience that Jesus and their their encounter will be much like this encounter. People like to think of Jesus as a baby in a manger. They like that Jesus. This Jesus is different than that. We, we worship Christ and He is powerful and we should not forget that. I mean, this is John. This was Jesus' buddy they were they were pals if a guy who had walked and hung out with Jesus for years sees him and has this experience this reaction just imagine what yours and mine will be so let's go back to our text in Corinth just for a second this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strengths and Paul is reminding us listen there are going to be people there are going to be folks the message of the world is going to be that you know it's too tough you shouldn't do that it's foolish it's weak and he's telling us to hang in there and and listen God's power God's wisdom is wiser than man's wisdom. His power, his strength is stronger than man's strength. And, and God knows more than us. Let me show you a picture. This is, um, this is Michelangelo's final sculpture. It's horrible, isn't it? He didn't finish it. It's called Piatta. He didn't finish it because he was having difficult shaping uh, the stone. In, in fact, uh, the idea is that sparks flew every time he would chisel. Can you imagine being a sculptor? It's hard for me to imagine. 
In fact, he got tired of it. He worked on this for 10 years. Now, I didn't do the research on this, so I don't know how that works. I don't know if he concentrated on it for 10 years straight or if he was like, like this was his side gig, you know. He was like painting the Sistine Chapel and then he goes over here and does this. I don't know how it worked exactly, but he worked on it for a long time and then he just he threw up his hands and he threw it away. And, and one of his uh, servants pulled it out of the trash heap. And that's why we still have it today. It's interesting, isn't it? And, and one of his friends said this about why he threw it away. He said about the... The stone. He said, the stone wants to be stone, and the artist wants it to be art. <laughs> That's good. We want to do what we want to do, and God wants to create in us a masterpiece. And we have to decide if we're going to let Him do what He wants to do. Because remember, remember, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, those who are headed to destruction. But, but... We who are being saved know it is the very power of God. And when we make decisions that are difficult, when we forgive even though we want revenge, and when we're selfless even even when we want to be selfish, and when we embrace grace rather than try to work our way into God's favor, when we do these things, we're saying we're, we're letting God shape us because that's a change of our hearts. Everybody else does it a certain way. We're to do it this way. I want to end with a couple of verses from the book of Joshua. Joshua was the guy that took over after Moses. Moses delivered uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're about to go into the promised land, and Joshua takes over. And Joshua has these great uh, words of encouragement, be strong and courageous, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It's great, this great oratory. Hey, we're we're about to enter the promised land and and be strong and courageous because this is going to be something. And here's what he's saying, I think, to his nation. And the message for us is we've got to stick together. Because the Word will tell us that this is not the way to be. Don't be forgiving, that's for chumps. It's not for chumps. Don't be selfless. That's for losers. Well, it's not for losers. We need each other. Which brings me to my last illustration, the Waffle House. I'm not a big Waffle House guy, just to be honest with you. Um, we went, uh, Elisa and I went one time when Miriam was out of town, because that Miriam ain't going. Uh, and uh, uh, Elisa and I went, and they kind of yell at each other to, you know, hey, uh, get me... Uh, Stack or whatever. I don't know what they yell. Uh, anyway, at least didn't like the yelling, but, it, but the food was awesome. But uh, we don't go very much. But uh, back in November in Birmingham, Alabama, there was a guy. His name is Ethan, um, Ethan Crispo. Cool name. Ethan goes into the Waffle House late at night, and uh, in his words, uh, there were... Um, Hungry, inebriated customers all around. So it's kind of full, which is typical for a Waffle House, from what I understand. So he goes in, and he notices that there's just one guy working behind the counter. This guy's taking orders. He's filling orders. He's busting the tables. And, and then he notices a guy in a blue shirt stands up, walks behind the counter, puts on an apron, and starts busting tables. And he thought, well, he, in fact, he writes, it was so seamless, it just sort of seemed like the guy must work there. He was on break, and now he's back off break. And 
This guy starts, he's, he's busting tables, he's doing dishes, he starts to work the grill. So he must work there. So the, other, the one guy that was there when Ethan came in comes to his table to take his order and he says, does that guy work here? And, and the Waffle House employee goes, no, I've never seen him before. I don't know who he is. Like, does he work at any Waffle House? I don't know who he is. I have no idea. This guy saw a need and he just jumped up and started to work. Which is really interesting because then in this story it says the man in the blue shirt was so inspiring um, that there was a lady who also joined in with a, a dress and high heels, um, which is not your typical uh, Waffle House clientele from what I can understand. And so they all sort of, everybody helped each other. This guy was all by himself. Evidently there was a scheduling glitch uh, or they were cheap. I don't know which it was. The guy was all by himself in the Waffle House and People started to help. And this is what they write. That's the great thing. This is the PR guy for Waffle House. That's the great thing that we have with our customers, the sense of community. Sense of community. That's what church is. We come to church to... Here's what I know about my life. My, my life's work is preaching. Um, I was with a bunch of preachers the other day and... And one of the guys said, uh, he was talking about his former pastor when he was young, and he said, I don't remember anything he preached, but I know he liked us. And here's what I know about every sermon I've ever preached. I work hard on these things, and there's not a snowball's chance in Honolulu any of you are ever going to remember any of them. And I get that. We get together to be reminded that God is powerful, like today, that we have a certain way we're supposed to live. And then we do life together. And I want you to know, I do like you. And if you need something, I can help you. If I can help you, I'll help you. And that's why we get in small groups, because we need groups of people to help us live life. That was a great line. That's the great thing that we have with our customers, a sense of community. Well, that's the great thing we have with our church, a sense of community. That's why groups are so powerful and important. I belong to a small group because I want to be... Involved in the lives of people. And you're as vulnerable as you want to be in those things. You don't have to tell anything or you can tell everything. But, but we then now I know I've got some friends that will help me when I need help. That's the beautiful thing. So Joshua is rousing his troops. And he says, um, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. It could be the same for us. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And for us, we could say, you know, throw away the commonly held belief that revenge is the right way and be selfish and work your way. It's none of that. Throw all that away. And then he says, but if serving the Lord is too undesirable, if it's too difficult for you, then choose for yourself this day who you'll serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The question, who's, who are you going to serve? Are you going to believe the commonly held belief that you've got to get your own, you've got to work it, you've got to dig it out by the roots, it's all about you, somebody does you wrong, you get them back as quick and as hard as you can, or are you going to live like Christ lived from the cross and, and, and live a life of forgiveness and selflessness and grace? Because we get to choose what life we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of the cross, which is powerful. Help us to adopt it and help us to live it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.